most of our modern politics comes from Republican Rome. And so if you go back and write about that, it really does, I think, shine a light on today. And one sees that corruption of money and power in the end just destroyed the whole basics of it. It's a warning that we take these things for granted. I think actually we don't take them for granted anymore because of what's happened in America in particular and what's going on in Russia. You realize that democracy is constantly under threat from powerful people and it's very hard to guard it. Democracy is not a natural state for people. Powerful stuff there from my guest on The Big Interview today, the novelist Robert Harris. Harris is a byword for polished, unputdownable historical fiction that's obsessed with power. Fatherland was the writer's debut, a counterfactual novel about a victorious Third Reich set in the 1960s on the lead-up to Hitler's 75th birthday. It became the first of 12 novels that have spanned the Second World War, the Roman Empire, contemporary politics, the election of a new pope, and a banking algorithm that escapes the control of its human inventor. Before fiction beckoned in the early 90s, Harris was a political editor of The Observer newspaper. We started talking about his latest novel, Munich, set at the cusp of World War II as Hitler and Chamberlain negotiate what was not to become peace in our time. Robert Harris, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. We always live in strange times, I suppose, but particularly now as a great writer about power, I wonder where you see it at its height and where you see a vacuum of it at the moment. Well, power is always there. I mean, it's been my subject as a writer all my life as a political journalist and then as a novelist, and it never goes away. I mean, it's like an element, I always think. It's like something like radioactivity, and it needs to be handled with great care and should be divided, and people should only handle it for a brief period, and it tends to destroy you if you do handle it. And the old patterns of control of power, I think, have broken down and we're living in times which seem if not revolutionary at least pre-revolutionary i mean i've written a book about pre-1939 pre-second world war but in some ways it reminds me of pre-1914 a long period of stability order but great social unrest in particular with issues social issues such as feminism and then this great smash that came almost from nowhere in 1914. And one does feel that the old structures are breaking down at the moment. Power is spreading in different ways. And your latest novel, Munich, tackles that very much head-on. An excess of power. It's set in the run-up to the Second World War. It's the Munich Conference, it's Chamberlain, it's Hitler. Although most of that novel is told through Hugh Legat and Paul Hartman, a British and a German this novel is written in the shadow of Chamberlain, but especially in the shadow of Hitler. I wonder what it was like to get to grips with that ultimate baddie, I wonder, on page. Well, it was extremely difficult. I mean, from the outset, I wanted two fictional characters, two junior officials, who would each be attached to the two main players at the Munich Conference, Chamberlain and Hitler. Chamberlain was a relatively easy person to put on the page. I don't think to my knowledge, actually, any novelist has ever put Neville Chamberlain into a book. So, you know, I had that ground to myself. And he is an interesting figure, much more dynamic and stronger 
figure than people recognise today. Chamberlain has got a rather shabby deal from history and it's important actually that we look back and get it straight what he was trying to do and what it was like. Hitler, of course, is often in novels and films and mainly it's pretty clunky and the main worry for me in writing Munich was the fact that I couldn't write it without putting Hitler in it and how did I do it? That was tough because he's such a iconic figure. It's very difficult to see beyond the ranting newsreel image of Hitler to what the man might have been like to meet in a small room or, in the case in this novel, be in the same railway compartment of him, which is what my character has to do and brief him. It was hard, but I'm glad I tried it. I did feel I came closer to him, and I was fortunate in the research for this novel in Munich not only to go to his study but also to go to his private apartment, which is now a police headquarters and normally kept close to the public, and to actually see it. I don't think you can beat going to someone's house to get a a sense of what they're like. Yeah, the proportions of a room, the height of a ceiling, the view out of the window are things that presumably you can build on. Yes. I mean, Hitler's apartment in Prince Regentsplatz in Munich passed to the Bavarian state in 1945 after his death, and has never been opened. He lived in there from the late 20s, and he kept it right to his death. And it was there that his niece, Geli Raubel, shot herself in 1931. There were strong allegations that Hitler was having a sexual relationship with her. And visiting this place, which, as I say, is off-limits, really, One sees Hitler's bedroom, which I stood in, and then a bathroom, and then the adjoining room was hers. And one was left a little doubt, having just seen the physical arrangements of the apartment, that it it was an extremely close affair. And just walking up and down the steps to that room, looking down at the communal gardens, standing on the balcony where he used to see his followers parade by, all the shelves are there for his library, for instance, and sitting there, which is where he sat with Chamberlain. It was hard not to get a sense of his physical presence. And I knew that I would have to set the climax of the novel in that very apartment, which is what I did. And that feeling, a similar feeling maybe to the one that you had, you translate to the readers of Munich, it's a very real thing. It felt to me a bit like one of those dreams where we supposedly, as Brits, dream that we've got to entertain the Queen for tea. You're in a small room with someone very well known, in this case, the world's ultimate baddie. But there is a strange thing in being in a small room with someone with such a well-known face that it makes you feel very strange. That's translated so well, I think, in the book. We often see him from afar and then suddenly we're right up close. There's something filmic about that as well. That's satisfying to read those things back and do something difficult with the plum. Well, I I should just explain perhaps that the central figures are Hugh Leggett, and, who is Chamberlain's private secretary, or one of them, and Paul von Hartmann, who works on the, in the English department of the German Foreign Ministry, and they were friends at Oxford in 1930. And the book opens with Hugh Leggett helping Chamberlain prepare that famous broadcast, you know, a faraway people of whom we know nothing. Yeah. And then we go to Berlin, and Paul Hartmann has to try... They haven't seen one another for six years, but he has to translate it and then take it into the Reich Chancellery and give it to the head of the German Foreign Ministry that night. And he is in with Hitler. 
And in the first version of the novel that I wrote, he goes into the room and Hitler is standing in the corner. And I tried to write it and I was so alarmed and appalled, really, by having to put this cliched figure in the book that I rang my editor and said, I can't go on with this book, actually. It's just going to be a disaster. And she talked me down. And so what happens in the novel is that he takes his translation of the broadcast right round to the Reich Chancellery gives it in, and then the door is closed in his face, and he never sees Hitler. And the moment I did that, the moment he was shut out from seeing him, I felt that I could write the book, because he was beyond the door. And then we only glimpse Hitler occasionally. He comes out of an office, or he walks along a railway platform to get on his train to go south to Munich. And it's not until this one scene where Hartmann unexpectedly finds himself summoned to Hitler's presence to brief him on what the English press are saying that you actually come face to face with him. And it's quite unexpected for the reader, just as it is for Hartmann. You feel like you run around a corner. Yeah, and and then I felt, I mean, it's not for me to judge, it's obviously it's for the reader, but I felt that that was right. First of all, the door is shut in our face, and then we glimpse him, we glimpse him, and then very unexpectedly, we found ourselves face to face with him in a brief meeting, and then we're out of the room again. For me, it did seem to manage to work. Jaws-like. Yes, exactly. I mean, he is the monster below the surface. And as in Jaws, the less often you see the shark, Mm. the more menacing the movie. So it is with Hitler. The less you see of him, the stronger the presence. So this is what we might call the craft of writing novels. What about the art of it? Is there any distinction? I've read around the subject on you, Robert, and I don't know whether you think it's like carpentry or whether you feel like it's like waking up in a sweat at three in the morning and writing furiously through the night. Well, it's a combination of the two, I think, to be honest. I mean, I've been writing fiction now for nearly 30 years, and in part it's a sort of dreamlike, almost unconscious happening upon things that interest you, and you may think about them for some years before you actually do anything with them. And that is quite an interesting process. Then there is, as you say, the carpentry. Okay, how do I turn this into something of 300 pages that people want to read? And that is technique. But the one thing I have become conscious of over the years is the importance of the subconscious. I mean, my writing habit is to start early in the morning, finish at lunchtime, and then stop thinking about it completely. And then over the course of the rest of the day, and in particular perhaps the night, the ideas come to you. And when you sit down the next morning, I correct what I wrote the previous day. And then hopefully what Stephen King calls the boys in the basement will provide the ideas for the next day's work. And in that way, it's interesting to you as well, because unexpected things all of a sudden pop up. I don't know whether I'm paraphrasing or whether this, you've said this yourself, that you always basically have to know what's going to happen at the end to start at the beginning. In your first novel, Fatherland, you didn't quite find this, and by the way, 30 years ago, but we started off in a future version of the Third Reich. In that book, same idea about power, and in this case, Hitler as well, and Third Reich Germany. I understand writing that when you came to a bit of a cropper and you needed to kind of... It was the teething first novel. I'd written non-fiction books, but I'd never written a novel. And I think there's a sort of romantic 
conception of writing a novel that one feels inspired by a particular character or setting and one sits <laughs> down and you know you can always instantly crack the knuckles yes yeah, so you can always head. incidentally spot a phony because they rent a cottage far far away <laughs> where they can sit and write all this is pretentious bullshit in my view so you think that you can simply sit down and make it up like a game of consequences well if you've ever played consequences yeah. of course it drifts off into nothing and so it is with a novel and when I started writing Fatherland I think I did have a pretty good conception that is a novel set on the eve of Hitler's 75th birthday in a victorious Germany and I had a few characters but I wrote a few pages 15 20 pages and I had all the characters in a room I was making it up as I went along and I realized that they didn't know why they were in the room together, and I didn't know why they were in the room together. It's rather like that thing when you're a child that you want to write a novel, and you get to page five and you stop. And I just put it aside, and then my agent at that time, the late Pat Kavanagh, wonderful agent, she sent me a John Irving essay, who said that, you know, a novelist should always know the end of their story before they begin. Otherwise, it's just lies. It's profoundly true. A novel relates something that has already happened. You have to invent what it is that happened before you can start to tell the story. I mean, you may depart along the way and you may tell it in a different way, but in the end there has to be a kernel of something that's already happened. And and that was really what made me able to write Fatherland. I sat down and I just simply spent a couple of weeks working out what it was I was trying to say. And then I knew why those policemen were in a room and what was going to happen next. And that is a story. You wouldn't embark on telling a joke without knowing the punchline, <laughs> would you? It would be absurd. Indeed. So that's essentially what one's having to do. And writing historical novels, as you do, if you're trying to make your way down the ski slope, there are the pine trees dotted down. You know you have to ski around. Does that make it easier? Was that that's happened by accident, or whether it's just your interest in power and history and possibly how they echo through time, or whether it is that nice ability to, you carve your own ski slope, but you do have some of those trees that you have to avoid in the way. It is like a sort of obstacle course. I write about the world around me and my concerns. Sometimes I do it in a contemporary book like The Fear Index Mm. or The Ghost, other times I find it's better to work these things out in historical framework. Uh, a novel I wrote about the Dreyfus of an officer and a spy is really about whistleblowers and about power and about the way institutions protect themselves and people can convince themselves it's right to lie. And so you go to the past to comment on the present. The difficulty in writing about the past is to be true to it. That's what I try to do in Munich. And in this novel, there is such a close-up sense of the present tense, I'd say, in those books, which is, I think must be a difficult thing to do when you're talking about history, not just history, but such a well-known bit of it, such a studied and familiar bit of it, whether you're a historian or just a regular newspaper reader and perhaps novel reader. As I say, there's something kind of white-knuckled about the presentness of that present tense. Well, that's what I try to do. I mean, just in tiny little details. For instance, when Chamberlain flew to see Hitler, that plane, a Lockheed Electra that he went on, they were not pressurised. 
it had to fly quite low. So it was a bumpy flight. Mm. And when you see a Lockheed Electra on the apron before it takes off, they're at an angle, a raked angle. So if you got on at the back, you had to almost, almost haul yourself up by the seats. There were 14 seats on a Lockheed Electra. Heston Aerodrome that he took off from, which is now you know on the M4 where the service station is, just right mm-hmm. there, that's where it was. There wasn't a concrete runway, it was a grass runway. So he bounced over a grass runway and he took off and there were thousands of people around on the, on the A4, the Great West Road, in their gardens, waving him off as he flew to see Hitler. And the moment one starts to think of history in those terms, and I imagine my character, Hugh Leggett, flying with him, then I hope that history comes alive rather in a way that one might colorize mm. a black and white picture. That's what I want to do, and I want to try and convey the extraordinary tension with the world on the brink of war of this elderly Prime Minister flying off in this quite hazardous journey, depressurized plane bouncing around, to meet Hitler. I want to go back to your days as a journalist, Robert. You were political editor at The Observer when you were 30, I think, Mm. young for such a high post. That's to do with power, that's to do with politics, that's to do with the mechanics, maybe some of the carpentry and some of the inspiration of politics as well. What was the feeling or the itch you had in your typing trigger finger (laughs) to suddenly go from that to writing novels? Was it a strong sense of feeling that there were parallels in the 30 years ago in British politics? Or was it a different story that kind of led you to go fiction? Well, I wrote several non-fiction books when I was a journalist, one about the Falklands War called Gotcha. I wrote a book about Neil Kinnock when he just became leader of the Labour Party. And then I wrote a book called Selling Hitler about the Hitler diary scandal of 1983. It was a terrific story to write about. In the course of it, I read Hitler's table talk. Hitler's table talk was stenographers took down his utterances over dinner at his headquarters in 1941 and 1942, and he thought he was going to win the war. So he laid out this grandiose vision of what the world was going to be like. And I read this as research for selling Hitler. And I thought, my God, this is fascinating, because this is not quite what I'd grown up of thinking the war was about. But really, it was a war of imperial conquest by the Germans. And I thought it would be interesting to write a book about what the world would have been like if this vision had come true. And then I thought, well, why don't I write it like a kind of guidebook to a world that never was? And then that led me to thinking, well, what would people have been like in this world? And that led me, in the end, to the creation of characters. And so I I always think of it as like, you know, in Alice in Wonderland, crossing through the glass and using the techniques of fiction to get at what I'd wanted to write as a non-fiction author. And that was it. I never went back because I just found that the tools of fiction suited me. Storytelling suited me in a way that journalism never did. And I could express myself better in that way. And who's the best storyteller you've come across in your time as a political editor of The Observer? Well, stories are really at the heart of all our lives. We're all interested in stories about other people. Our lives are all stories. We're all interested in what happens next, both in terms of our own lives and what happens in terms of politics. You know, what's going to happen next is a very strong impetus. Any novel for me that doesn't rely upon that motor has got to have something pretty special about it 
to make up for it. And politicians, the most successful of them, tell a story. Margaret Thatcher, who I covered in my early years Mm. as a reporter, she told a story. She had a narrative about Britain living beyond its means, a housekeeper need to come in, a nation like a family can't spend more than it earns, basic values. She constructed a narrative. And in, in a similar way, Churchill in 1940 constructed a narrative. He told people why they should be fighting. I mean, why would you fight over... Poland. He gave it a story. We were fighting evil. So all the successful politicians, it seems to me, have a story to tell. And unfortunately, we're living in an era when our politicians don't seem to me to have stories to tell. They just simply survive from day to day. Because I think the world has become so complicated and strange that politicians are just reacting to events nowadays. And they can't impose upon it the order the politicians previously have done. Trump sort of has a folklore, doesn't he? Is he a tempting character? I'm sure you're obviously very interested in him. What does it take to get you to look to America, I wonder, in terms of of your fiction writing? Trump is the death of political fiction because one can't improve on the reality and there's nothing (laughs) that you can do. There's nothing outlandish. You know, the president is a crook, the president is mad, the president is this and the other. There's nothing I could invent that would be more outlandish than the reality, the whole Stormy Daniels and the allegations of the prostitutes in Moscow and the rest of it. I mean, how could one make all this up? And it's real. And for me, it's very hard to set political fiction in the modern world because the characters are so extraordinary and one senses that there's something beyond the day-to-day headlines, something, I don't know what it's to do with new technology, artificial intelligence, some thing is going on we're seeing the ramifications from it in the newspaper headlines and the stories but what precisely it is i don't know we can yet be sure novels really have to get to a kind of conspiratorial core to suggest what's going on and it's hard to do that at the moment that's why you know the past is a great refuge because it doesn't date but I'm reminded of the Fear Index, which I really enjoyed because it was about it was about the unknowability of a kind of machine gone mad. I kind of feel like that's where we're going with internet warfare and farms of Russian hackers sent off like would have been platoons of soldiers 50 years ago. I'd love to read Robert Harris on that. <laughs> <laughs> so would I. Uh, uh, no, I think that that's right. I mean, you know, first of all, people worried that the next war would be tanks and then nuclear weapons. But increasingly, it's clear that the next conflict, if it comes, won't be explosives. It won't be killing in an obvious way, like the Luftwaffe bombing London or something. It will be an interruption in banking. Maybe you won't be able to get money out of your ATM or some cyber disruption, and we are very, very vulnerable. Our society has become so sophisticated, it's reached a point of complete decadence. A supermarket looks like a great warehouse full of goodies, but in fact, beyond those shelves, there's very little. It's just resupplied by lorries, hourly almost. Any interruption in that, and the shelves empty, as we see if there's a tanker driver strike or a cold spell, you suddenly realise how close to the edge... We are. And if there's a cyber attack that could disrupt that, even for a few days, the consequences in terms of civil order and so on could be really serious. So, you know, I am 
by nature an optimist, but there's certain things about the modern world that make me quite pessimistic. Well, you, yeah, you paint a picture of, of, I suppose, the edifice of the contemporary world with a bit of a chasm behind it. Well, you know, I'm interested in power. I wrote three novels about Cicero, yeah. which really are about... That was a very sophisticated society, uh, the Roman Republic. It had lasted for centuries. In many ways, a more sophisticated democracy than ours. But that society went collapsed within 25 years, that whole system. And I think there are things now that one feels that ours... All civilizations end very abruptly, you know, and I think it's sort of built into our DNA to worry that the same thing is going to happen. Any reader of those books will know why you were attracted to Cicero, the oratory, the, the prose style as well. Was that for you the sort of, not the font of civilization, but the apogee of it, and from which maybe all, despite the fact they might have been written before or afterwards, all your other books kind of flow from that? Yeah, I, th- I would say it was the template. You know, they devised a system of laws. I mean, all these man-made systems are, are wide open to corruption. Certainly that one was. But it was a very sophisticated system, and most of our modern politics comes from Republican Rome. A lot of the language, canvassing, ambition, senate, the whole notion of having power divided, re-elected annually, comes from that time. And so if you go back and write about that, which is what I try to do, it almost as if it was the West Wing, but only set in the Roman era, getting away from gladiators and emperors, but just looking at politics, the law courts and the rest of it. How did it function? And it really does, I think, shine a light on today. And one sees that corruption of money and power in the end just destroyed the whole basics of it. And it disappeared, this very sophisticated system of democracy, for more than a thousand years from the planet. It's a warning that we take these things for granted. I think actually we don't take them for granted anymore because of what's happened in America in particular and what's going on in Russia. You realize that democracy is constantly under threat from powerful people seeking to subvert it for their own ends and it's very hard to guard it. Democracy is not a natural state for people. Then the idea that grew after the fall of the Berlin Wall, oh that you can plant democracy in the Middle East or wherever and you know everything will then be fine. We now see that that's not the case and that the way human beings order their affairs is not easy at all. It's a strange thing growing up in Britain in the 80s and 90s you felt like you possibly weren't growing up during a time of history somehow. But now I feel in the last five years that there is a different feeling that these are the things that will be written down. The idea of the Brexit and Trump's presidency and Putin's Russia go back. They have their architecture, they have their foundations way back. But it seems strange. You feel that there is a time to have your antennae flickering and there's a time when they're a little duller somehow. I fear that we are living in interesting times, as the Chinese curse puts it. And, you know, it's not without its excitement, but it's no longer stable. And the moment the capitalist economies in the West failed to really deliver for the mass of people a better life, a better life year on year and for their children, that ended around 2008. So it's 10 years ago. 
And, you know, Hitler went from 2.5% of the vote before the Great Crash to within four years, 37% of the vote. These economic crises, when people lose faith in the system, they throw up all sorts of crazy kind of phenomena. We've had 10 years of people, I'm not saying people are kind of starving, but they've sort of lost faith in the system now, and it's hard for young people to get a start And, you know, that won't hold. You have to pay a price for that. It does feel to me as though we're moving into a period where something extraordinary is likely to happen. Um, Before we end, I want to go back to your back to your writer's room. A lot of things, a lot of things in your books happen in small, a lot of very important things happen in small rooms in your books, which is probably just as they were. <laughs> they don't tend to happen at the, in the forum or the yeah. Colosseum or, or maybe even on a battlefield. They always happen in a, in a small room. So all these, all your books happen in this small room in your house in Berkshire. What's the view out of your window? Oh, I have a very fortunate view. I, I live in a Victorian Gothic vicarage and I have a sort of view out to the Kennet-Navon Canal and the towpath beyond and uh, you know I couldn't live just looking out at fields and you know there's a boat going by or there's people on the towpath or yeah. beyond that there's the railway line and we've lived there for 25 years and I I don't think I'd have written so many books if I'd stayed in London there would have been too many distractions but instead I have to pour all my energies and excitement onto the page because you know <laughs> I'd live quite peacefully in the country. Robert Harris thank you very much um, indeed for joining us today. Been a pleasure thank you. The Big Interview is produced by Yulene Goffin and Gaia Lutz and edited by Cassie Galpin and George McDonough. I've been Robert Bounds and thank you very much for tuning in.